I went to Montana to have a look at the ranch that Savage did live on. But actually, it wasn't the house of my imagination or the fiction of the story. And we didn't find any ranch houses in Montana that could be renovated economically to tell our story. It became clear that it would be easier for us to work in New Zealand. We have an amazing landscape there. And if it could be Middle Earth, it could be Montana for us. Those are words from director Jane Campion on deciding to shoot in New Zealand versus America for a 2021 film, The Power of the Dog. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer. And each week I invite a guest on to discuss a film and the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney, and today we're talking about Power of the Dog. So quick synopsis of the film is, charismatic rancher Phil Burbank inspires fear and awe in those around him. When his brother brings home a new wife and her son, Phil torments them until he finds himself exposed to the possibility of love. Tagline for the film is, what it means to be a man. The film stars Benedict Cumberbatch as Phil Burbank, Jesse Plemons as George Burbank, Kirsten Dunst as Rose Gordon, and Cody Smith-McPhee as Peter Gordon. It's written by Jane Campion, based on the novel by Thomas Savage, cinematography by Ari Wagner, directed by Jane Campion, edited by Peter Shaberas, and music by Johnny Greenwood. Today, my guest is Emily Gagne, and I know her from her work as a co-curator for a film program in Toronto at Review Cinema called We Really Like Her, and it focuses on, focuses on women in film. So before we get into Jane Campion and Power of the Dog, Emily, thank you so much for joining the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Felicia. This is uh, a dream to come on the show and to talk about Jane Campion. What what a treat. Truly. It's been really, really great revisiting a lot of her work. And before we get into the film, I'd love for you to tell the audience a bit about, you know, your work as a pro- film programmer, and then we can get into how you started watching films and what turned you into wanting to f- uh, program films in the city. Sure. Um, yeah. So we really like her. Started as a podcast, actually. Um, we had a podcast before we really like her called What About Meryl, which was about Meryl Streep. And we talked about the the filmography of Meryl Streep. Uh, and so we went through a bunch of her movies, not every single one, but a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And we watched them. My partner and I, Danita Steinberg, we loved that. And then we ended the Meryl podcast. We like finished all the movies and we're like, what do we do now? And we realized Mm -hmm. over the course of doing that podcast that we love talking about women in particular, not just actresses, but filmmakers, screenwriters, costume designers, etc. And highlighting women like Anne Roth does a lot of costumes for Meryl, for example. It like it kept coming up and we were like, Anne Roth, she's just the best. So we're Mm -hmm. like, how can we continue highlighting women? So we started the podcast. We really like her where we highlighted a different woman in film, whether that was an actress or a director or writer or whatever, like Diablo Cody is an example of a Mm -hmm. writer that we did who I love. And so we decided that we would highlight women in film and, and we did the podcast for a while. And then we sort of asked the review if we could do, you know, an event to support our podcast. And um, they said, yes, we'd worked with them once before for a screening of Postcards from the Edge, which was tied to the Merrill podcast. And so they said yes. And we did Mermaids was our first screening we ever did. Uh, which I love. I love, love, love that film. And then they were like, yeah, you can continue doing it. And so we went from there. And really, our whole thing is that we just want to we want to highlight women filmmakers like women directors and and show films like whether they're you know a little more niche like working girls made by lizzie borden mm-hmm. which is one that we screened in november or you know like the biggest movies of all time like mamma mia is is a film that we screen like once a year because it is a true triumph of spirit but also mm-hmm. um a box office like hit you know and so it's so important to honor women not only as like creative geniuses but also of like financial geniuses so Mm -hmm. um so that that's pretty much what we really like her is about and like next month we're doing next month being february at this time of recording i don't know when this Mm -hmm. is coming up but we're doing a barbie screening like a drunken cinema barbie screening so that's highlighting the you know box office part of it but then we're doing um Josie and the Pussycats, which is a uh, co-written and co-directed 
by uh, Deborah Kaplan. And that film is just like, just so incredible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> masterpiece. So that, that's what we do. And it, it's really just a celebration is what I, I mm-hmm. like to think of it as uh, an opportunity for you to like, just appreciate women's work, which is great. You know, we don't get that as much as we should. And I really do appreciate the films that you have put on. One of them being one of my favorites, and I will bring it up in this because I think that Jane for sure, this is a specific scene that I'm pretty sure was inspired by Yentl. And I think that's a great film to champion because people really don't give it its due at all. So mm-hmm. I'll be gushing about Yentl a little bit <laughs> as we talk about this film. But I love that. Oh, it's great. I love it. Do you recall the first time you watched this film? It's actually the newest film I've done on this podcast so far. Um, So it's a couple of years old at this point. But do you recall when you watched it and what your initial thoughts were on the film? Yeah, I watched it as part of TIFF. It it screened as part of TIFF. But I think it was the year um, that it was sort of a hybrid festival. It was a little bit in person and then it was online. And so I was, I was able to watch it online. And so I watched it at home and um, I was so excited to watch it. It was like one of my like top picks of the festival. I really liked it, but I remember being a little bit distracted in the TIFF haze where I was like on my phone a little bit. And this is a movie that I really think needs to be like watched. Like you need to pay attention because there's so many small little moments that if you look away for a second, you're going to miss it. And so I really liked it and I like championed it. But I think I, I liked it even more on this recent watch because it, mm-hmm. I just really immersed myself in it. I was home alone. I just watched it by myself, um, you know, with like a candle on. And I just I, I was really in it this time. And yeah. uh, I wish I'd seen it in the theaters, to be honest. I, I just wish I'd seen it on the big screen. That's my regret. I know. Same. I didn't get to see it in the cinema. And it really, especially even on this watch, I'm like, oh, man, my TV is not big enough for this. <laughs> no, no. The, I mean, it's still a great watch. It's great that it so accessible for people and I think that's important because it is a Netflix film and I was just thinking when I rewatched it, I was like this was the best movie of the year <laughs> like hands down there was just no competition for that year at all but yeah and would you consider yourself a campion fan or is this like a one-off or do you like most of her work? I like a lot of her work. I think like she's one that, of course, whenever you're talking about women in film or you're looking up women in film, she's like one of the first yeah. people that comes into conversation because she broke so much ground um, in terms of, you know, being nominated for an Oscar and winning the Palme d'Or and all of these things. So she's talked about a lot, but I think like some of her smaller work isn't appreciated enough. So I didn't get to see it necessarily right away or didn't find it right away but over time I've come to appreciate her so much and like the piano like that movie is just unreal like I I watched that movie and I'm like this is why I love movies like it's it's so so freaking good but in the cut is also exceptional and I think what's so cool is like all of her movies are a little bit different but they all Mm -hmm. feel connected despite being like entirely different in terms of plot. And I think like Power of the Dog is such a culmination of all of her work. I like it it feels like a like a piece of all of different things that she's done throughout time. And so it makes me happy that she won an Oscar for this film because I feel like it's not only like an honorary Oscar for all of the work that she's done, but it feels like such a deserving Oscar. Oh, yeah. I would have been really like upset is an understatement <laughs> she hadn't won that year because she really deserved it and i also like to think of it it is sort of an honorary but it's also like she very much deserved it for this film it wasn't kind of like a oh it's been too late we got to give her one because we didn't give her one before this was just an insane piece of work that every time i think of her it's like i can't wait for the next one and i hope it's not such a huge break between like this and what she did with Bright Star was like over 10 years. I I hope it's not another 10 years. I know. Well, it like I feel like her getting so much acclaim for it, working with Netflix, like I think that all of mm-hmm. those things are like positive in terms of like getting her more funding to do other stuff. So I yeah. feel good about it. But you never know. You know, like women, it's that's the story with women. They succeed and then all of a sudden uh, they make one little mistake, uh, Ishtar. Yep. And then, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's over. So, yeah. yeah. That's unfortunate that hopefully they do her less dirty than they've done Elaine May. Yeah, you could say that again. (laughs) Well, 
If you're ready, I'm ready to get into the film itself. One of the first things I wanted to talk about doing research for this series and going back and rewatching basically all of her films, because she does have a smaller filmography, so it wasn't like having to watch 20, 30 movies. It was like a good 10, which is doable. The protagonists are always women. In this one, we get our first male protagonist, and it's very fitting for the story. And I think it's great what she did with this, because you get a lot of stories with characters that are unlikable as the protagonist and that works and it doesn't work for some people i think it works here you're not supposed to like him they never make you like him but he's so watchable and you want to see what he's doing and the way phil operates in this film and interacts with everyone it is super toxic even with himself how do you feel about the choice i know it's, it's adapted from a novel but the choice for her to adapt this novel knowing that this is going to be a male protagonist and showing how toxic he is versus the other work she's done. Yeah. I mean, I always say that I think true feminism is being able to talk about men as well. Like you can't yeah. just ignore the elephant in the room, which mm -hmm. is that uh, the patriarchy also affects men. And so I think it's actually like really cool to see her perspective because um, she's so smart about gender roles and gender play. And she she talks about that in, in every movie that she does just from a different perspective, like in the cut, for example, is like she talks about how dangerous it is to be a woman and how mm -hmm. you're always looked at by men. So why not talk about sort of how a man looks at himself? and how he wants yeah. to present himself. I think it's so much stronger coming from her than it would be coming from a man. Like, like I saw somebody tweet the other day and it's truly how I feel, which is that women make the best movies about men because they can like, look objectively at the situation and yeah. say, you know, like, this is what you're doing. And I think she does this so well, not just through Phil, but also even with George and like how he kind of ignores things and, and just yeah. wants to keep the peace, you know, and like just how damaging expectations on of gender are for everyone involved. Yeah, I like what you said about it being a neutral view of it because I never find that she's judging him too harshly. She's just presenting him as is. And it's up for us to be like, we agree with him or not. Most people are not going to agree with his choices and just how he interacts with even his own brother and the names that he calls him. But it never makes you feel like, you know, he's a true villain. He's a victim of multiple things that have happened in his life and he just has no desire to grow and evolve from that. Yeah. Jane is the perfect person to do that because she's so used to having those characters as like the foil to the woman in, in the film. So highlighting it here, it, you can't help but watch and kind of be amazed by this character and just his life choices with everything he does. So yeah. it's great, great story and great choices from her. But this is also essentially a family movie. You know, we've got several different family dynamics. Essentially, there's about five of them that we can talk about individually. But there's Rose and Peter, which is mother and son. And there's George and Phil, brothers, George and Rose, husband and wife, Rose and Phil, in-laws. And then George and Peter, which is a smaller one, but I think it's worth noting. Mm -hmm. So if we talk about Rose and Peter first, which is a really sweet relationship because this is a single mother who's working just to survive. She has her own cafe bed and breakfast and she's really sweet and accepting of her son's artistry and just his way of being and doesn't question it and they have a very sweet relationship where he calls her by her first name and it's not you know patronizing and she just accepts everything and they accept each other and they're supporting each other and we get that opening quote from him where he's talking about his father passing and how he just only he only wants her happiness which <laughs> comes into play a lot through the film and it's not really until the end where you're like, wait a minute, didn't he just say essentially what he was going to do? Yep. And I think that's just so beautifully done, especially when you rewatch it and you're like, okay, I hear, I hear you fully mm -hmm. at this point. But how do you feel about their relationship and just the way that they are there for each other and how that evolves throughout the film? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, like you said, it, it is a beautiful relationship. And it is like you you see so many portrayals of like young boys and their single moms and they're like acting out, but he is just so mm -hmm. supportive of her. And, and she she is nurturing him in a time where she could say, oh, like, that's, you know, yeah. that's too feminine of an activity for you to be doing making these paper flowers, which the paper flowers are so beautiful. I want one I like 
so bad. But like just to see even like after Phil sets one of the the flowers on fire at the table, which that in that infuriates me every time, even though I know it's going to happen. I'm just like, how dare you do that? But he's trying to puff himself up and look cool and look uh, masculine and, and, and assert his dominance. But she like subtly just like removes the vases from the table and like doesn't make a big deal about it. Doesn't like say anything, but just as like, you're not going to destroy the rest of my voice like work. You're just not going to do that. I'm not going to let that happen. And so I think that that's like so beautiful and how she like also acts out later on in the film against Phil because she's she's feeling protective of Peter and like worried about him when she really does, doesn't have to be worried about him at all. He's a master yeah. <laughs> But I, I think it's just such a pure relationship and between both of them they really care about each other and i think that that is a nice counterpoint to you know the like gruffness of phil to be like you know Mm -hmm. men can be caring and can you know stand up for the women in their life which like i think george does to an extent too but you know peter peter has been with her like forever and uh has been with her in the tough times too I like that scene that you mentioned about the the vases because I think that's who she is as a mother. Uh, she doesn't need to make a scene because she knows it's not worth her time and these people will not care. She's used to this behavior and just removing it and being like, I'm going to take control of the situation without having to make a fuss about it because this is the only way I can control it. And I think yeah. that's just really great. She also like wants to protect her job. Like she, this is this is her source of income. So she can't just blow yeah. up at this guy, even though she I'm sure wants to because she's like I need to make money from these people I need to have them come back I need like I need to survive because at that point she has no other way out like obviously later on she gets some money um through marriage but at that time like she's got to look out for number one and number two who is is Peter you know yeah I I really love the way their relationship continues that way and there was never a rift between them because that that really just would have been unfortunate for this story but that brings us to george and phil the film opens up with phil and he's essentially stomping through the house as he would and when he meets george or he's calling george who's in the bath he's calling him fatso and he you see him Throughout the film, that's how he refers to him. And George never says anything about it, but you can see on his face, Jesse Plum is a great actor. He's so good in this role. You can see it, the little pain of pain every time he hears that. And it's weird because Phil is so, he has a confidence there, but then as you see that he's not that confident. But when he's talking to people, he thinks he's the most confident person. And that's how he talks to George. Like, I am going to tell you what to do. This is how we're going to do it. You know, even the concept of George being in the bath and George saying, have you ever tried doing this? And Phil's like, why would I do that? (laughs) Just their relationship really also made me sad because you can see George not wanting to push his buttons. This is his brother. He knows him the best out of anyone would. But for anyone who has siblings who, you know, you don't want to get into a fight with them. You kind of just be like, well, that's the way they are. I'm not going to push it. So how do you read their relationship? And there is a progression there, more overt one, between the two of them. And George changes his tune about Phil as the story goes on. So how do you feel about that? Yeah, I always find it interesting how like they sleep in the same bed. Like that yeah. is like a little strange to me when they have a big house. Like, I, like yes. I'm just like, okay. And that Phil cannot go to sleep without George. Like he's like, he's like uncomfortable. Like it's like he needs his little, his brother there. But also he's so rude to his brother. So you're like, he needs him and he like wants him by his side. But he also treats him like he doesn't want to have anything to do with him. And so it's like, it's. It's such a like dick measuring contest kind of vibe mm-hmm. to me, um, where Phil always feels like he can, you know, assert his power over George. And that's probably why he wants to be around him. But at the end of the day, Phil is a, just as damaged as anybody else and like literally needs his his brother to sleep with him. Like, like, <laughs> like not literally, but, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> And so I, I think it's 
I think it's such an interesting dynamic because it's presenting two sides of how men sort of deal with masculinity and like the pressures of it. One is going to just like act out and and play the like stereotypical part. And the other one is going to like fall back a little and just let somebody else take the space because they don't, they're not ready to take on that role or they don't want to disturb the peace. And so what I like about George is over time, he sort of becomes a little bit more assertive, especially because he has this wife now that he wants to care for. And he's like, you know, maybe I can stand my brother calling me fatso. But if he's gonna like act out against my wife, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. You know, and like, so it's interesting to see him step up. But I still think George is like a little bit meek, Mm -hmm. even throughout, he's still not gonna ever be Phil. And I don't know that that's a bad thing. um, Because Phil is just so heinous. Yeah. (laughs) Truly. Yeah. George is interesting because he is really sweet. And you get that scene when he the first scene that they're even together, him and Rose, where he goes back to pay the bill and he hears her crying and he goes to comfort her. So right off the bat, you're like, okay, if we didn't already see the difference between him and Phil, we now really see that this is someone. And it doesn't seem come across as like creepy, like he's trying to hit on her. He's just a nice guy who feels really bad because he knows how his brother is over time he obviously falls for her and there's this couple really cute scenes he she's swamped with work and usually peter helps her and he just takes the towel and he starts serving people and those people know him really well they're just kind of in shock that he would be a servant of some sorts and that's really sweet i love that scene it always makes me tear up and there's another scene that really always just like sometimes I had to look away because I'm like, this is too emotional for me. But when she's teaching him to dance yeah, and he goes off to like shed a tear and he's like, it's so nice to not be alone. I'm just like, Jane, please, I can't handle this. Like my I heart know. is too much. That scene always stands out to me because that's how you know that she's in good hands with him. It takes time for her to finally feel happy again, but she's still in good hands with him. How do you feel about, you know, their relationship and how it progresses and how it flowers? Yeah, I mean, I think it's beautiful. Like, I just think it's so nice to see somebody be kind to her because you get the sense like you only spend so much time with her, but you get the sense that she's just been treated badly her whole life. And obviously her her first husband killed himself so that's just like really hard and she the way that Kirsten Dunst like plays it is she's like she's very tired and she's probably been like working her ass off for years trying to support her and her son and not like those other people that keep coming to the the cafe that are like dancing everywhere and like kind of taunting her with like the threat of you know um her playing the piano which i like when you see more of her piano playing i feel like it's kind of rude what they're saying and so to see this guy come in and be so kind is so wonderful but also i like to see that she also opens him up like i think that they're very good for each other in a way where like he's kind of like slow down i can help you like you yeah. you're not alone you, you i got this like if peter's not here i got this like you don't know yeah. you know at the same way like she's like you can dance you're dancing yeah. when she says you're dancing like that scene is so beautiful because i bet you there's been a time in the past when like phil is like is like don't don't dance or like because yeah. i noticed in this watch like when all the guys all the ranch hands are like at the bar or whatever phil's just sitting there like a bump on a log like not dancing not doing anything and i bet you there's been times where like phil's like men don't do that like just sit down you know like that's the vibe you get so to have somebody that's like letting george be whoever he wants to be or like have fun and be playful is just so joyous and i feel like when we see rose and george at the end like from the window and we just see them like kissing and embracing it's just you're like they're gonna have a positive marriage like their little family unit is gonna be okay now and i love that and it didn't feel tacked on it felt like this is the right ending for them and you see that in peter's little smile at the end where he's like you know i took care of you mom you don't ever need to know what i did but we'll be okay now so i love that i'm curious to know how you feel about the because he talked about the piano piano is a running theme through almost all of her work he's obsessed with pianos plays a really big part in this this story 
And I haven't read the book, so I don't know if it's been there or to what extent, but how do you feel about the scene where he has the governor and his wife come over and his parents, and he's asked, he's asked her prior to this to play the piano and she practices because that leads to the initial break. How do you feel about him kind of pushing it and you're reading on that? Like George pushing it or Phil yeah, pushing it? George. I think George wants her to be able to show her stuff and also come a little bit out of her shell because we see yeah. her interacting with um his parents and and the governor and she's like a little awkward like she's there holding the drinks and she's like I don't really know what to do so I think he's like well if she can't she's not so comfortable socializing maybe she can play the piano and that's something she's comfortable with doing so yeah. I think what his pushing was like more innocent like he just didn't know um and that's part of the problem of like marrying somebody that you don't know that well like you haven't had a chance to really know uh, what their talents are or what their comfort levels are or their boundaries are and I think like like she wanted to impress them. Like you see her practicing, you know, but I think like playing piano for drunken people at a cafe that like maybe aren't really listening to you or drunken people or, you know, people that are watching a movie at a cinema because that's what she she does as a job as well is accompanying films like is different than like four people watching you and listening intently to you playing piano. Yeah. And so I think George's intents were good, but he he did fuck up. And then, of course, Phil comes into the picture and is just being a total dickhead, like humming and whistling the song that she's been practicing. So freaking rude. I can't, I can't stand that man. So George innocent, Phil not innocent. <laughs> I agree 100%. I think it was totally innocent. I don't think he was being like, you need to be a certain way. I think he 100% was just like, he thought it would make her happy to be able to show that part of herself because she is a little shy and a little awkward, to be honest. He obviously learned from that and he didn't say anything after she decided to not play. And that's how I know. He wasn't just like, you know, taking her aside to be like, uh, you know, I promised them this. He's like, okay, it's fine. And then Phil comes and obviously ruins her entire evening just the look on her face you just feel so much for her there's a scene prior to that where she's practicing and he's playing the same same tune on the banjo and just taunting her and mocking her and you're like man this guy's a massive piece of shit yeah like just the absolute worst which like brings us to rose and phil because their first scene together she calls him you know brother phil and he's like i'm not your brother he calls her a cheap schemer is what he says mm -hmm. and just imagine that's the first time you meet well they've met before obviously at the cafe that this is the first time they're meeting as two people in the house and to be told that knowing that we all know that she's obviously not a schemer at all she didn't plan any of this he knows too but He's pushing her. Their relationship is the most toxic because it's toxic one-sided from on his side. And he really pushes her to a dark place where I guess it's maybe alluded to that she might have had an alcohol problem prior, maybe after her previous husband. And she eventually got over that. I only say that because at one point, Peter sees the bottle in her bed and he kind of pushes away not to make her feel bad. So I think he knows that she's had this previous problem. But yeah. Pushes her to a point where she just wants to forget. George is away for a little while in this film. Quite a while to the point when he comes back. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot that you were away this whole time. She gets really bad. And it's really sad to see her downfall. You just see the physical drain it takes on her body. So how do you read the way their relationship progresses and just how it's really bad from the start and just gets worse and worse yeah i mean i think he's trying to intimidate her because number one he, that's his mo like he just yeah. he just wants to intimidate everybody and, and assert power over everybody like the only person that has power over him he thinks is like was bronco henry uh, mm -hmm. who he brings up constantly but he asserts his power over her like in immediately when the first time when they interact which is behaving so inappropriately at at the table um and setting those flowers on fire and putting them in the water jug he puts he puts it out in the water jug which i was like well great that water's like she can't use that water now like yeah 
great. You're just being a total dick. But I think his whole thing is to chip her down. And I think he hopes that one day she'll just leave and it'll be him and George again. Like that's mm-hmm. that's his ultimate hope. And I think he sees over time that George is not going to like back down that like he's committed to this relationship. So what can he do? But, you know, cut this woman down to size. And she's a woman after all. So he assumes that he can do that. And it, it just kills me because like she's she seems so happy in other ways. And then all of a sudden she's broken down like this. Yeah. And and she's ashamed too, where like when he catches her, when Phil catches her like drinking, you know, immediately you know, oh, he's gonna use this. Like he's he's taking this knowledge and he's going to use it against her. It's just so it's just so upsetting. And Kristen Dunst, like she is she is so exceptional in this role. Like I love her so much. I think we all do. Mm-hmm. But like she really, really has in other movies, she has this like bratty sort of like over the top quality, but here she's so insular and so like scared and, you know, withdrawn in a way that I don't think we get to see her be so often. And it is really, you just feel so bad for her when she's like, when that scene when she like is drinking and then she like has to hide it from George, like just like quickly, yeah. you know, it's just, it's so upsetting and it just makes, it makes you want to kill Phil. Which yep. is so interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because um, luckily, you know, we he gets his just desserts. But what he puts her through is just, it's standard toxic masculinity is essentially what it is. It's exactly that. Even when he sees her drinking, he starts humming that tune and she's hearing it. She's questioning herself. Am I hearing this or what? Because he's stopping it and starting it. And it's just like this man is so calculated. He's not just like randomly being a piece of shit. Like this man is calculating every single move. He knows what he's going to do. And it's scary. And when you see, because you mentioned the fear that she has with the blossoming relationship that Peter and Phil have. And when they ride off together, the fear that she has, and she's just crying. She's saying to George, I don't want them together. Because anyone would just be like, I don't know what this man's planning on doing because they're going off together. So it's really sad to see what happens there. But thankfully, we get some relief in the end. Much deserved relief. But one of the other relationships that I wanted to talk about, which seems a little smaller because they really don't interact much. But I found it interesting on this watch how little they interact with George and Peter. Because Mm -hmm. they are essentially stepson stepfather at this point but they don't really have any scenes together they don't talk about each other peter kind of mentions you know because she asked him to leave his school books or his medical books and he's like well these are dads so they got to stay at school he doesn't really want them there but they don't really talk to each other they don't really acknowledge each other and it's interesting to see the fact that that wasn't used as a way for Peter to try and get out of the house. He's got bigger problems, obviously, because his someone is actually antagonistic towards him. But how do you feel about that fact that that's really not explored their relationship at all? Yeah, that's it's it's interesting because you'd think, especially given the fact that like Peter's dad died in such a dramatic way that like Mm -hmm. there could be something to like sort of chew on there in terms of like daddy issues and like you know um the trauma that came with that and and maybe that is a little bit of it is that like he's like a little bit standoffish to this this new guy whether he likes it or not but i i think like peter is really just like an observer and that's like kind of his power And so I think like he's kind of still probably like observing and judging George a little bit to be like, like, is this guy good? Because like, I care Mm -hmm. about my mom first and foremost. And I don't know that like I have like, I want to get super close to this person because who knows what's going to happen? You know, he knows what happens to his dad and he knows that, you know, loss can happen at any time. So I think that could be part of it. But I also think like his number one priority, him being Peter, is his mom. So I think like he He's more focused on her than anything. And so like staying with around with Phil, for example, as opposed to like maybe going off with George would be his priority because he wants to protect her. And so I imagine, I don't know if you feel this way, but I imagine that like George and Peter would have a much like better and productive relationship after Phil's out of the picture because they could both be themselves and not have to hide. Because I think like George is... 
is hiding or or was sort of like holding himself back being around Phil. And I think I think him and Peter could have a really wonderful relationship. I, I believe that. Like I could see, you know, George really supporting his artistic side in the same way that he supports, you know, Rose's artistic side in trying to get her to play the piano. But I don't know. Like, do you, do you get the impression that like they could have a good relationship? I think very much. And I think that's why that final shot is so powerful where he's the one looking down and watching them kiss and you're watching him watching them. And when he turns around, he's smiling. And I think that means that he knows his mother is safe and in good hands. And I think you're right where he is kind of apprehensive about George, but not in a way where he finds him to be a threat. He's just more like, what's the deal with the situation we're in? How long can my mom withstand living in this house with this other person? Will she leave? Do I need to make and have a relationship with this man? And he doesn't view him as a threat, so he doesn't need to focus on his energy on her and like saving his mom from George because he loves her and he knows that George loves her. I thought that that's actually an interesting point because I, I just was like, I don't understand why we're not getting really any scenes of them talking to each other. But I think it's also good that there's no scenes where he's participating and making fun of him. And oftentimes, even that there's a great scene where Peter's walking along and all the ranch hands are calling him all these ugly names and we get a shot of rose looking worried and there's a shot also george looking worried and that's how you know okay he doesn't have a problem with peter at all and i think he will they will have a really great relationship after which i like to think in my my mind's a power of the dog too yeah yeah (laughs) waiting for it jane where's power yeah (laughs) those are the relationships but you also mentioned brocco henry who's uh Someone we don't see, obviously, is passed on a very important part of this story, incredibly important part, and ties into the queer storyline of this film that is at times in the background, at times it's very overt, and we get it through the two characters, Peter and Phil, in very different ways. It's a little bit more overt with Peter. It's not ever said what his preference is, but it doesn't matter. That's how people view him. Phil's obviously the complete opposite. He embodies someone who would never consider that. And we find out that's different, that that's not factual at all. Mm-hmm. And if you're watching this, you don't know anything about it. You're wondering, why does this man keep talking about Bronco Henry? What's the deal? And then we get a really fantastic scene where there's a bunch of the ranch hands in the water, they're bathing, and then he goes off on his own. That's where I bring in the Yentl stuff, because there's a great scene in Yentl where I was like, that's one of my all-time favorite scenes in cinema. I thought it was so beautifully shot, where I'm like, I could only aspire to shoot a film, a scene like this. And when I saw Power of the Dog for the first time, I was like, oh my God, Yentl, that's the scene. <laughs> <laughs> I she love does it that. so well in it <laughs> she does it so well here but then we get the scene where he's lying down he's caressing his body he's like from top up like shirtless and he's caressing his body with this cloth and then there's that quick little shot of bh and you're like oh i know what's happening mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that scene and the, and the reveal and the choice to reveal it that way i love that scene number one i love queerness in any film anytime there's Mm -hmm. a queer twist i am on board i'm just like absolutely yes and i definitely before i saw that scene i was like something's going on with him why does he keep talking about bronco henry like and he's nodding at the bar he wasn't engaging with any of the girls like i was just i was like i clocked him i think pretty early (laughs) but so i love that scene with phil just enjoying himself because i think it's like a moment of him just like allowing himself to be himself and to give himself over to the pleasure that he obviously feels for Bronco Henry felt for him. It's like just and it's gorgeously shot scene of just like him lying in in, in alone. Yeah. But I think it is such an encapsulation of him that like he can only be that way in private. Like he would never want to expose that part of himself. And the fact that he's doing that while the other guys are like naked, you know, swimming, yeah. like maybe he was a little bit like aroused by that experience and then had to go away and, and you know, deal with it his own yeah. way. So I, I love that scene. And I and I also love that, you know, we see Peter sort of observe this and that that's sort of his way of being like, oh, I know what the deal is. And now I have some information that I can use to my advantage because I already know that this guy thinks that I'm queer. So, and he is queer. So, you know, I can do something with this. 
And then the next scene is Phil being like, oh, I'm, I'm actually going to be nice to this guy now because he has information on me. But also you're probably like, maybe he can get something out of it because his relationship with Bronco Henry was obviously one like, I assume that Bronco Henry kind of like groomed him into yeah. this situation because we see also the magazines with with the, the porn um, mm-hmm. that uh, Peter finds and that you're like, those were Bronco Henry's magazines you know and he probably showed them to phil and then just showed him the way so that now phil is so like taken with bronco henry that he can't help but mention him at any like any opportunity and also he seductively cleans that saddle that used to belong to bronco henry that like you know it's so obvious like i don't know how anybody else isn't seeing that this man is in love with a dead man he really does bring him up at any opportunity to the point where you're like sure we get it you're in love which is fine i actually hadn't read it as him grooming but i was like that makes total sense because he obviously would have been much older than him and like i wonder what the age difference would have been that's really interesting and then the, the flip of the switch with him and peter when they go off together he's like oh Bronco Henry was about your age too when he started writing. So he starts comparing the two and I was like, oh my God, here we go. So he's going to start doing onto Peter what was done to him. And it's just, it's subtle, but it's also overt enough where you're like, okay, I know where we're going from here. And Peter, the same way you clocked it, I'm sure Peter did right away where he's like, okay, as he said, I know what to do with this information and how to use it to my advantage. And it's just so well done. And it never feels forced and it never feels like i don't know like i think another filmmaker would make it wouldn't make it that storyline so beautiful i think they would kind of punish phil for being closeted and just being so angry that he just doesn't know how to express himself but i think the way she shoots it and tells the story kind of that's the only empathetic thing that you can have for him where this is a man who just doesn't know how to express himself and i don't think that that justifies his behavior at all but you can kind of feel for that part because of the time that he's living in and the way he was raised unfortunately so it's a really good aspect of the story that most people enjoyed some other people famous and not famous obviously didn't like at all Mm -hmm. um who will go unnamed sam elliott um (laughs) but i think it's just a beautiful and Again, Jane is the person to do this because she's just she handles everything with such grace and you never feel as though she's judging even the ugliest of characters. She's just honest and sometimes brutally honest. Yeah. And she's like showing you not telling, which is like such such a cliche, but it's so true that like Mm -hmm. it's not said that he's queer. You just see you just you just it's expressed to you and you do with that information what you will. You know, and I, I just love that. There's no like big reveals. It's just this like subtle reveal. And I think that that is so powerful because that's how it would be in real life, too. Like that guy's never going to admit to that. He's not going to have a conversation about it. It's just going to be something that somebody like accidentally observes because he's kept it so, so close to the chest. It just wouldn't have worked if there was a huge reveal, even if it was the case of Peter calling him out on it. That would have ended very badly for Peter. So yeah. I'm glad it didn't go that route. Just really well done. And she's working within the Western genre, which is not a genre we get often anymore. I'm a huge fan of Western's problematic genre, but then there's gems throughout that are really progressive because it's such a problematic genre. And this is a progressive one. There's talks of when genres that are not done as often anymore of like revisionist film this sometimes considered revisionist Western. I think it's just a straight up Western that she's telling her story through. So how do you feel about that? Like, I don't think she's defying the, the conventions of the genre. She's just telling a story that might not be told that often in the genre, but it's still a Western. Yeah, it's definitely a Western. It has all like the like uh, trademarks, like just like these like people living in this ranch and and the new person comes in and and dealing mm-hmm. with that. Like, I, I, I think that, queer element is you know a little bit different and it brings it more into today but the story is not new it's not a new story it's it was written years ago and it was written by 
a gay man. Um, so, and I like, I, we were talking before we started recording that there's like a little, like a bonus feature thing on Netflix mm-hmm. that you can watch after the power of the dog, which has like footage of Jane directing. And at one point in that, she says that Thomas Savage was like a feminine presence in a masculine world. And like, in that mm-hmm. way, I think that like, that makes me the perfect person to tell this story because I am a feminine presence in a masculine world. And I think like, yes, a woman telling a Western is, is feminist in its own way. And those are my favorite, those are my favorite Westerns too, are like ones yeah. that are made by women or about women. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I, I think this is like, this is a movie that like I would recommend. My dad loves Westerns. Like he is like, unfortunately he loves John Wayne. And that is like, he even admits as somebody who is conservative as hell, like he admits that John Wayne is a problematic man, um, but yeah. he loves John Wayne movies. And this is a movie I would still recommend to my dad who like loves the old school Westerns, do you know? And uh, he might not love the gay twist, but I think, I don't think it would, it's not so outrageous that I think he would like yeah. have a problem with it. I think it would just fit into the rest of the canon because mm-hmm. the fact is there's, people made such a big deal about Broadway Mountain, which is one of my absolute favorite movies at the time. But like, obviously there were gay cowboys or like queer people existed in all yeah time you know just because it wasn't always presented doesn't mean that it didn't exist truly and like as someone who also likes the old school westerns with newer eyes and more modern eyes that i'm looking at through sometimes you see stuff in films that probably wouldn't have been read that way then because they would have like absolutely not but then you're like "Mm, i see what you're doing here with these characters and i know that was probably the intention but hoping that no one would notice (laughs) and i also agree i love the ones that are either made by women or starring women especially women like you know joan crawford barbara stanwyck like those are the best ones so because even those sometimes get labeled as a revisionist westerns i'm like no it's just a western it just happens to be about a woman like we're not it's not revisionist at all no i i agree i think this is straight up western and i love that you said that you would recommend it to someone who loves older westerns or like the more formulaic ones because i think this just stands on its own as one that is a western and for a genre that doesn't get done anymore as often for a woman to do it i think it's just another step in the why jane is just <laughs> so great and can really do anything are there any parts uh of the story or themes that we haven't chatted about that you want to bring up i just think like i love a quiet reveal and i just think that this movie does that so expertly where like it sticks with you like one of my favorite one of my favorite authors of all time is shirley jackson I mm-hmm. feel like she is a master of the the like silent reveal or like the like twist ending that you're like yeah the the pearl clutcher that's what I call it the pearl like mm-hmm. it's a pearl clutcher and I think that this movie is a pearl clutcher in so many ways which I absolutely love where you're like oh dear like really that's happening like to me that like final moment of the like showdown between Phil and Peter, when he's he's like, I'm not. You're gonna watch me braid this this rope, and they exchange a cigarette. Like that is such in another movie. This it would be like a literal showdown, like two guys with guns ablazing at each other. But this is just like a, a quiet moment, but it has so much tension in it. And I think like there that is so incredible. And it's just subtly revealed, oh, like we think he had anthrax. And the reason he had anthrax is because of the hides that Peter gave him. Like it's just it's just beautiful in its like subtlety. And I ju- I just love that like soft twist of the knife that i think jane does so well but like i think i think just women do that so well like like it's it's subtlety and i think yeah subtlety is is the big thing about this movie that i think works so so well i'm glad that you brought that up because especially that cigarette sharing scene where i was like oh my god this is so beautifully shot like it kind of felt like a in that little moment a noir where they're just kind of enveloped in black and the cigarette smoke going back and forth and i was like oh my god like it's so so good and then as the story goes on there's that great shot of him washing his hands and the blood and the water and the rope and as he gets sick and then you're like wait a minute i think i just i didn't get that that was what's what's gonna happen at all and i just remember being like wait a minute did 
did he plan this this whole time? And then you think back and you're like, all the clues were there. Yeah. But even on like a rewatch, it still is so great to just see. Then you can clock and be like, oh, I see where you started this. Like you, you've been playing this for a hot minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And even the the end shot when you see him like holding the rope in his room and he's got the gloves on. And mm-hmm. I was like, I was like, that's just like that's such a small, subtle thing. Yeah, he won't he won't touch that because it's infected. <laughs> and he yeah. knows. But he's gonna keep that. That's like a prize of of what he did, you know? That's like his prize, his tainted prize. And it it's just it's it's like delicious. It's just delicious. Yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. And I like that you said that it's a prize because it's very much that where he's like, I'm not going to give this up. And I know, you know, to keep it away from other people touching it and from myself touching it. And it's just, it is really delicious for you. Like, you know, he got what he deserves. He probably deserved way more than that. But that's a great ending for that character. And it's not even like an overtly super happy ending, but you feel, as we've been saying, comforted by the fact that these people can now just relax and live their lives. So I love that for them. Uh-huh. And I love that for this movie. And as you said, Jane's such a great writer. Subtlety is really her forte. Yeah. I I like to doodle when I watch movies. It's just like a thing that I do. And my doodles are like hats, some boot, a bunch of paper flowers, the little purse, the little leather purse that Rose has. Oh, yes. Okay. A bundle of flowers because that's what she brings when she first comes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just like a rendering of... <laughs> Of Rose as a character, because I just loved her hair in it. Just to be a Man. little bit like superficial for a moment, I just thought she looked great. And yeah. I, I love the costume work on this film on, on Chris and Dunn's. Like she just that like 20 style really mm-hmm. suits her. It just beautiful. It does. She was wearing some really great shoes at some point, too, that I really clocked where I was like, oh, wow, those are great. And someone really took the time to find it was like set of the time. I was like, you cannot find shoes like that anymore. You couldn't find shoes like 10 years after that. So I love that you deal. That's really cool. <laughs> I love that it's on brand with everything in the film. So yeah, I think I think we covered Power of the Dog. We can move to the last segment where we'll still talk about Jane. We'll still talk about Power of the Dog. But there's two more questions that I have for you. First being, as someone who's watched enough Cambian films that you have a good scope of what she's capable of and what she has to offer. If someone came up to you and asked for a recommendation on where to start, they've never seen anything by her before. What film are you recommending and what's the reasoning behind that recommendation? Like, I know this is a basic answer, but it's the piano because I just think it is such an encapsulation of everything that she brings to the table. Mm-hmm. And I think it is a movie that would convince you to watch the rest of her work because it's so, so powerful and like visually arresting and mm-hmm. emotional. And I, I just think it is the perfect entry point to her and understanding why she's such a force in this industry. But also, I just think if you haven't seen The Piano, you absolutely need to see it. Like Holly Hunter is so incredible in it and also you need to see how hot harvey Keitel is like just you need to see it (laughs) so um i think it's important but i i do think that it is just a wonderful piece of work and yeah it might be her most like well-known piece of work up until maybe power of the dog now Mm -hmm. um but i think it is it is just that exceptional that it is it is it is the way to get into jane i mean 100% 100% agree. And every other guest I have had on also would agree. Where This is the only filmmakers I've covered so far where everyone's answer was the same, like it's an obvious one. And I don't think it's because it's her biggest one. I think it's because that's the film that defines what she has to offer. And I think when you're recommending a film to someone who's never seen, you have to give them that film that shows you exactly who they are, what they do. And then you can branch off. You can branch off to Bright Star this that you can go holy smoke in the cut for you to start it in the cut i would be like well she only has a couple movies like this yeah so you're not getting the full scope of her and it might put you off if you're not familiar or ready for it i think it's great i love in the cut i really do the piano would be my automatic recommendation i'd just be like even if it wasn't i I would just in the sense as you said you have to watch the piano like you have to see it because it's just beautiful, immaculate work. And you get some Harvey Keitel action in there too. So no complaints all around. Great film. But 
in terms of Power of the Dog, if you're making a double bill, what film or films would you pair this one with? And what's the, the thematic reasoning behind the the double bill? Okay, so this this question really threw me for a loop because I had so many thoughts. So I have three answers and I'm yeah, sorry. Please. No, please give me as many as you want. My automatic first thought was McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Mm, and okay. the reason I say that is I feel like you're a fan of it and just I have a vibe that you like McCabe and Mrs. Miller. But I think... Jesse Plemons wears a like fur mm-hmm. coat at one point that really reminds me of the one that Warren Beatty wears in McCabe and yeah. Mrs. Miller. <laughs> That's the first. But also, I think that that McCabe and Mrs. Miller is like a, a really interesting film about gender and gender roles and gender expectations. And I like I think that th- this film also plays with that and is about like a very small setting and just the things that go on in this one sp- particular area and these particular people. So that is why. My automatically, I said McCabe, Mrs. Miller. But then I thought more about it and I said Brokeback Mountain, which I already mentioned. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that, of course, there's the queerness, but it's going back to those quiet reveal moments yeah. that, like, I, when I saw the scene of Phil seeing um, Rose drinking in the alleyway reminded me of the scene where Alma sees Jack and Innes kissing yeah uh, in Brokeback and how that was that was a pearl clutcher uh also I remember being in the theater at the Cumberland uh downtown oh, yeah. with uh, I made my mom take me opening weekend to see Brokeback and everyone was like gasping in that scene and mm. so I think of those moments and the like the way that somebody withholds themselves and um how that damages them like i think broke back would be like a very good compliment to this also based on on a book i just think like a lot of threads are similar um whereas like broke back does it a little more over this is a little more subtle but they're both subtle movies overall and very quietly yeah. moving movies um my last like really crazy <laughs> to complete the set is ravenous which is an antonio bird movie um which i know sounds nuts but um if you haven't seen it, it's a cannibal uh horror western but i think that movie is like is like the like extreme heightened version of this in terms of like competition between men and like latent homosexuality and so yeah. Those are my answers. No, I think those are all very good and would make for like perfect double bills. I think actually Altman and Campion are good pairings just in general. Very different filmmakers, but can be subtle at times. Altman does have times where he can be subtle. So I think that's great. And Brockmat Mountain is also great. It's I've been meaning to rewatch that because I haven't seen it in like probably 10 years, to be honest. It's been a long time. Ravenous is, yeah. That's funny. I think that's great. <laughs> that would make for a fun night. Wouldn't it? I think. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know. You maybe watch Power of the Dog first, like, you know, like, I and, think then, so. yeah. and then it's like a midnight movie ravenous. You're just like, let's just crank it up. Yeah, like, <laughs> truly. I think that's the way to go. And it would be a fun night. We're like, okay, I'm going to get the, the chips out because yeah. <laughs> to watch a cannibal movie. I also just had to I just had to throw a female filmmaker in there. And that's mm-hmm. that was part of my ravenous thought. If I was like another woman who did Westerns yeah. and did it in a different way. I was like, why not? <laughs> I love that. I wish I had thought of a, another woman, but I did not. I, I brought I have two choices on mine. And one which I recently watched for the first time called The Westerner. It's William Wyler in 1940. And it stars Gary Cooper, who kind of plays a little bit of a Peter-esque character where he's an outsider coming in and everyone's kind of like, what's going on with this guy? And there's a couple scenes in that film, one that really kind of shocked me only because it was in the 1940s where Gary Cooper wakes up in a bed with another man and they're cuddling each other because they got drunk the night before. But there's a great shot where like William Wyler's like lingering on the fact that they, they're asleep for a while and they're holding each other in bed. And I was just like, this is 1940 and Gary Cooper's a huge star you know but there's like there's more subtle things throughout but that's the one that's like very over about that character we're like okay I see what you guys are doing here William like (laughs) I think it's great like I just remember being like I cannot believe this passed the censors in 1940 so that was one another one that was more on the toxic masculinity side this would be a long double bill because this movie is like three hours long 
You're going to have to start this one during the day and end it with Power on the Dog. But I thought of Giant, George Stevens uh, film. And Phil just reminded me of James Dean's character in that film, where he's just like an insane amount of anger that just builds and builds to the point where you're like, man, you need to just relax for a bit because it's just like the vitriol that those two characters have. I think Phil's nastier mm-hmm. um than james dean's character in that but also visually the two films huge beautiful you know vast landscapes and also you get to see liz taylor and rock hudson so I, there's no complaints that's one of my all-time favorite movies but it's a time commitment and power of the dog's not short either although i feel mm-hmm. like it goes by very fast i will I say agree. so those would be my my choices i like those i just i watched giant at uh the Paradise, which is a local theater here. Well, I was also there then. You were? <laughs> yeah, because I saw it. It was like during the day, right? Yeah. Over the summer. Yeah, I was there. I brought my partner who had never seen it. And I'd been telling him for years. I was like, love this movie, Giant. And when it was playing, I was like, I have to see it. And I was like, oh, man, he's going to be so bored. He watches movies too, but like three hours, as you say, it's a commitment. And I was just shocked at how much he loved it. And I was like, well, I told you. <laughs> I told you it's great. It's great to see it in the cinema. There was a there was a man there with his young daughter who was I, I'm really bad at telling kids' age. I want to say she was like 10, 11. And mm-hmm. she sat through the whole thing and I was like, oh my God. I felt so emotional. I was like, that's so beautiful. Yeah. The, you know, father and his daughter coming to see Giant. I know that that's so sweet. And like to think that she could watch that whole thing. Like that's that's a cinephile in training. You know what I mean? Really? Like yeah. Because I know other kids. I was just talking with somebody about this day. Like I know kids that they can't sit through a movie. They can't sit through mm-hmm. an uh, 80 minute movie, let alone a three hour movie. So no. I'm glad to see that kids are still getting into old movies. Yeah. I was like, wow, I am so excited for you because <laughs> you've got like a really great, you know, life ahead of you and obviously great parents to support and are showing you the good stuff. So I love that. That was one of my favorite summer moments. But thank you, Emily, so much for joining me for Power of the Dog. That was a great conversation. And we weren't even that mean to Phil. He deserved more. But, you know, sometimes you got to talk about the nicer people in a story. But thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And I'll just say it. Fuck you, Phil. You suck. Um, (laughs) I'm glad you died. Okay. Truly. Same. (laughs) Seeing Faces of Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney with intro music by The Marwalker. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesofmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesofmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And stay tuned for our next episode on Holy Smoke. <laughs>